announcements. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look to finish out the chapter. We're looking at verses 15 through 28. Hebrews 9, if you need to borrow a Bible, uh, you guys know the routine, just wave at Gino or Genoa, and those guys will grab you a Bible, and you can follow along with us. And we're taking kind of a little bit bigger chunk than we normally do, from 15 to, to 28. I entitled our message this morning, A Meaningful Sacrifice. Uh, that is where the writer brings us to this particular section, A Meaningful Sacrifice. And if you're there in Hebrews 9, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm not going to read all of those verses. Uh, we'll just read uh, to verse 17 to kind of give us a, a running start. The writer says, For this reason, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called, that's you and me, that we may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The writer says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator or the testator lives. All right, we're going to pause there and would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. God, we, we come before you humbly. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life he lived and the death he died so that we could be completely forgiven and made brand new. Lord, I pray for hearts that are heavy today in light of all of the crazy circumstances that are happening in our world and in our lives Lord, I pray that you would be the lifter of heads. Holy Spirit, that you would comfort, that you would overwhelm those who are anxious, those who are worried, those, Lord, who are unsure of what tomorrow holds. God, by your grace, we pray you would sustain them. Father, help us to keep our focus on you. Lord, help us to be thankful as your word invites us to be anxious for nothing with thanksgiving, Lord, we come to you, we cast our cares to you, and God, we thank you for then the peace that you give us, a peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, for those who need wisdom, God, I pray that you would lead and guide and speak. Father, you would give favor and you would give courage. Lord, go before our church family in these times. And Father, for those who need healing, we pray that you might, by your grace, touch from heaven to strengthen, to comfort, Lord, to bring healing physically and mentally and spiritually. And so we ask of these things. Speak to our hearts this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name together we ask these things. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment, say hello to someone, and then afterwards you may have a seat.
So it was two weeks ago that we were in Hebrews last. We had a special message and service last Sunday, and if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and check out the live stream. So we had an opportunity just to talk about what God is doing and God at work, and we prayed for Alex and Jess as we launched them. But here in chapter 9, at the beginning of 9, the author, if you remember, he, he takes us through a tour of the tabernacle. And in that tour, he highlights the furniture and the fixtures that were found in the inner rooms of the holy place and the holy of holies. Along with that, he revisited the, the procedures that the high priest would follow on a very special day, a holiday that the Jews observed called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And as he did so, he came to verse 9 and he basically told us, Here's the reason for the tour. It's all symbolic. All the things that, that God had instituted, the, the systems and the furniture. In fact, the, the, all of the Old Testament, in many ways, was just a giant story picture book to point us to, well, to Jesus. It, it's all symbolic. And it served, if you will, as a type of Old Testament parable that Again, pointed God's people to a Messiah that was to come who was promised. Now, parables, you remember Jesus often taught in parables. The parables were a, a type of earthly story, a story that portrayed something that people were familiar with, and yet it, it pointed to or it illustrated a, a heavenly or an eternal truth. In many ways, the Old Testament system of worship was a type of of participatory parable, where the people would participate in this parable, all of it pointing to eternal things. But that system, the writer's been telling us, was temporary. That God's original design for why he put it all into place, it included a planned obsolescence. That it had an expiration date. Um, chapter 8, verse 13 the writer says, and he made the first obsolete. Now, when Jesus came, when God came in the flesh, he, part of his ministry was to announce this final inauguration. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And then when Jesus died on a cross for your sins and mine, the old system ceased it, it was put away. And a new system that God also designed, that God also promised, this new covenant of God's grace then was enacted. It was instituted. And all that the old system could not do, Jesus did and Jesus does. In, in verse 11, we had read that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. And some of your translations will even read, of the good things that have come. And so that is why over and over, the writer of Hebrews is telling the reader, Jesus is so much better. Jesus is so much better than anything that you and I could ever pursue in this life. For the original audience, they had come to faith in Christ from Judaism. And we had talked how they were under tremendous temptation to go back to the old life, to go back to the old rituals and ways. 
And what we find out from the writer is that a lot of that pressure came from within their communities, its family, its friends, its the culture around them that was ingrained in how they grew up. And all of it's greatly tied to the old system. And the old system had a lot of appeal. I mean, first of all, it was what God gave them, so there was that. But remember that it was, uh, it, it was visual, it was tangible. Uh, the old ways were filled with sacred ceremonies, with tastes and smells and sounds. And so there's a, there's a lot that was appealing, and yet, even in all of that, it was powerless. It was powerless to change the heart. It was powerless to, to wash the conscience and heal the soul and save a person. Only a relationship with God through Jesus Christ can change a heart. Only in Jesus can you and I find true forgiveness. Only in Christ do we find removal of our guilt and shame and the stain of our sins. And all of this able, all of this provided because Christ gave His life for you and for me. Because He shed His blood as a sacrifice in your place and mine. And so the writer then begins to talk about that. The, the blood of Christ and how the blood of Christ is so much better. The sacrifice of Christ is so much better. In verse 14, he says, Then how much more shall the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? It's the idea of empty religion, our attempts. To deliver us from that, then to be able to serve. And the idea is then to love and have a relationship with experience and worship the living God. Now, the writer does not want us, nor the original audience, to miss this at all. And so he will repeat himself several times. He, he spends a lot of time explaining the symbolism of the old system and how it points to the new one. And he explains how all of this was part of God's plan. That even the old system, it wasn't a mistake for them to follow the first covenant. But he is saying, listen, you don't need to follow it anymore. It's been fulfilled now. All of the requirements of the old have been completed in Christ. And now that Christ has come, He is now our new high priest, eternal high priest. And He ushers in a new covenant for us, a new way, a new system. And again, his argument is, and it's better much, much better. And so here, as he continues, he's going to explain then the, how the sacrifice of Christ is meaningful. That it means something for all of us. Now, by the way, as an aside, understand this too. That the sacrifices that you have made, the sacrifices that you make for the sake of others, it is meaningful as well. Please do not let anyone ever tell you otherwise. God sees and God knows and God cares and God loves you 
And I, and I would add this, and God will vindicate you, and God will justify you. As we study these verses, understand that our, our, our text or verses before us, it doesn't necessarily bring us to imperatives. We're not going to find anything directly where God says, I want you to do this in response of this truth that I just gave. And so in many ways, the application is implied. And the application, I'll just tell you what it is. It's appreciation. It's understanding. It's to apprehend all that Christ has done for us and that would then lead us to appreciate all that Christ has done for us, and that we would then adore you know, everything that God is and all that Christ has done for us. In many ways, the application is just to be overwhelmed by the loving kindness of God through the sacrifice of Christ. So his, his sacrifice is meaningful. And I want to point out with you, you note know, five things that the author uh, tells us in this chapter. There's more than five, but we're just going to note five together, okay? Verse 15 through 17. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And he goes on to say, for where there's a testament, there also must be the necessity of death of the testator. For a testament is in force after the person passes away. He says, since there's no power while the person, the testator, testator lives. Here the author now brings us into a new example to explain that what the death of Jesus Christ accomplished. Gang, remember that Jesus didn't come as a new high priest to take over the existing old priesthood. It wasn't like for some of you a, a change of command ceremony where Jesus shows up and he now takes the guide on flag from the, the old high priest and, and the former high priest relinquishes command and hands over the blackberry uh, you know, and changes the nameplate on the outer temple uh, and here now he can park his, his donkey in the new high priest spot. That, that's not what happened. Jesus doesn't come and just kind of take over the old system uh, and, and run the old system. No, Jesus replaced it. The, all of it goes away. And, and, the, and the, the expiration date of the old system, when did it happen? We're told, by means of death. For this reason, Jesus comes in to bring in the new covenant and he does so by means of his death. And by means of his death, then, for those who are called, that's you and me, we find then redemption. We, we get to then come into the inheritance of, of the promise of eternal life. And so that is the point then. That is the, the, the point where the old goes and the new comes in. When Jesus Christ died on the cross on a hill of Calvary, the old covenant was closed. That contract was fulfilled. It's now null and void, and a brand new one begins. And the writer then explains it in the way of using a last will and testament. Something that people still use and have and do today. 
In our church safe downstairs, uh, I have my last will and testament. Things that I've written out, things that I would like done when I enter into glory. I'll give you a little bit of a preview. Listen, the day that I enter into glory, you're still around. No sad funeral for me. Uh, wear Hawaiian shirts. Uh, I, I, the staff already knows it's barbecue chicken wings. Um, and that is the one day that the worship team can play Waves of Mercy. Okay? Because I'm, I'm not a particular fan of that song. Anyways, but that day they can play it. And I have in there everything, like the tens of my dollars will go to my family. And, and written in there, well, it used to say Christy's not allowed to get remarried after a year. But then one day she asked me, I told you this before, then she asked me, well, can I start dating right away? I'm like, oh, so I had to change it. Christy can't, Christy can't start dating after one year. So. Right? Those are the terms. Now, they're not activated until... God brings me to glory. There's no waves of mercy we're playing. Christy isn't starting, you know. To, that, that doesn't, those things don't happen. Those things don't uh, get enacted until I'm gone. That's how a will works, right? That's how living trust and testaments work. Like where there is a, a testament and all the terms to be applied to that testament, then they come when the the person passes away. And of course, that's what the writer is saying. It's only after the person dies do those terms then go into effect and they become reality. Now, maybe for some of you, you uh, you've received some type of inheritance. You had a loved one, a family member, and, and they passed away. And, and as a result of their passing away, uh, you know, you were able to, you know, come into maybe some money or some, uh, you know, family items that have sentimental value. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, it activated, if you will, it inaugurated our salvation. It brought forth the first deposits of all of our inheritance. The death of a Savior brought us life. And understand, church family, that in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to die. And so one of the things that we note about his sacrifice and the meaning of his sacrifice, if you're a note taker, number one, his sacrifice was necessary. It was necessary. There was no other way. And one of the points the writer has been making along with this, and even earlier, is that it had to be this way. Jesus had to come in the likeness of man for a multitude of reasons. First of all, so he could be our priest. Second of all, so that he would have empathy and he would be able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. That he'd understand what temptation is and yet Christ without sin. That he had to be then made in the likeness of of us so that he could taste death, to pass from life into death, to become then the, the propitiation of our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God, to be the first fruits then for all of us. There was no other way. It was necessary. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, 
in that great conversation about eternal life and how to get to heaven, in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that unusual symbol where the people would look upon the, the snake on the stake and be healed by that, which is a symbol today of, of modern medicine. Yet Jesus says that symbolized, just as Moses did that, so then must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the idea that, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life, He goes on to say. There's no other way for us to be forgiven. There's no other way for us to be reconciled to God. Jesus Himself would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the disciples declare there is salvation in no, other, no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven amongst men which we must be saved. And so we understand then it was necessary. In order for the new covenant to happen, it was necessary that the the, the, the testator would pass away in order for the testament then to be inaugurated. Verse 18, Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats. He then took water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And he made this mixture, and he sprinkled both the book itself, and so the, the, the scrolls that he had written out, the Word of God, and then notice all the people. And then he declared, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded to you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood, then the tabernacle, all of the vessels of ministry, and we read according to the law, almost all things, notice this phrase, purified with blood or cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The idea, no remission of sin. In, in verses 18 through 22, the, the writer gives us, once again, a, a biblical history lesson. To remind us what God told Moses to do. Now, that word that he uses for testament earlier, and now he's going to talk about this covenant, it's the same word. It's the Greek word diatheke. And later on, he's actually going to use it again, to, uh, and it's translated as will. In other words, it was Christ's death that brought into effect the new diakethe, or diatheke, excuse me. And to underscore that point, the writer then demonstrates that even in the Old Testament, under Moses, death was necessary, that this wasn't a new concept. And so the writer then explains in detail the ceremony and the significance of the blood. 
Now, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the, the power of the blood and how blood represented life, how God created this system in which animals were sacrificed. And the reason why is so that people would be able to have a graphic visual to see the seriousness of sin. It was tangible. It was visual. And to add to it, you, we read that the blood then of the sacrifice, it was then sprinkled on everything. It was sprinkled on the book. It was sprinkled on the people. It was applied to the priests themselves. It was then sprinkled on all of the furniture and everything within the holy place. Now, just for a moment, take that visual in. To us, that's an odd thing, right? When we went over to uh, pray for uh, the church planet Kadena, we weren't taking some blood and sprinkling it everywhere. And, and some of you, and many of you went and actually helped to clean and you didn't use blood. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, uh, ben was in the kitchen, and he was making some chicken, so he grabbed uh, a bottle of barbecue sauce. And if you know my son, you know, he, he's a little bit bigger, and uh, he, he, he does things with a lot of force sometimes. And so as soon as he went to shake the bottle, it only took two, like, and, and the lid popped off, and just a spray, a sprinkler spray of barbecue sauce just went everywhere, all in the kitchen and just splattered the wall and the oven and the floor and, and all on my shirt, like all over the back, my back. And all that precious barbecue sauce. <laughs> I was all, you know, <laughs> grab some chicken, wipe it up. You know. Maybe you ever have a, one of those magic pressure cookers, and uh, maybe you opened it up too soon. You're trying to make maybe soup or whatever you made liquefied, and the whole thing just was a fine mist of you know salsa chicken all over your kitchen. I don't know. That's what the temple and the tabernacle look like. It, it just splattered all over the furniture and the fixtures and the people and their clothes and the priests. In many ways, it looked more like a horror movie or a crime scene than it did a place of worship. And yet, this is exactly what God prescribes. He, in order for the people to receive forgiveness of sins, the precious blood of life, of an innocent sacrifice, was sprinkled all over you couldn't escape it. The, the seriousness and the ugliness of sin was inescapable. You would be confronted with it. The, the idea of the, the horror of it, the reality of it, the, I can think of other adjectives, you know, just the shocking value of it. And in many ways, that's what God wanted. He wanted them and us to realize sin is serious. This is what it costs. And gang, it's a point for us just to remember, we need to understand and appreciate 
Sin is serious. It's not something that God plays with. It's not a trivial thing to the Lord. The wages of it, the result of it, it's death. It's ugly. It's not becoming. And if you're like me, you know, sometimes we can excuse our sin. Or we can trivialize and think, ah, well, it's just a small thing. But we have to come back to understand, no, listen, it is a serious matter to the Lord. God doesn't treat it lightly. Jesus gave his life for us, for that sin. And if God doesn't treat it lightly, gang, neither should we. We shouldn't play games with the Lord. Is there grace when we mess up? There absolutely is. Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. But the Word also tells us that we're not to use God's grace as an excuse or a cloak or to cover up our sin or to excuse our sin away. His sacrifice should mean something. It does mean something. It's meaningful. You know, rightly, we get upset. And rightly, we can become very angered when we see others who treat with contempt, who dishonor, or who seem to have great ungratefulness towards those who have sacrificed, to those who have suffered for the freedoms we enjoy. Like we, when we see that, it, it irritates us, it bothers us, it angers us, and rightly so. Sin is ugly, and to trivialize the cost is to insult the one who paid for our sins. Now, notice with me the word that the writer uses both in verse 22 and in 23. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. In 23, he says, Therefore it is necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. You know, we, we, we generally tend to think of blood as something that stains. It's something that we need to clean up. Laundry detergent companies will advertise how powerful their product is by how it can remove the stain of coffee or grass or blood. But in God's case, blood is the cleansing agent. Blood is the thing that actually purifies and cleanses us. Can you imagine if I said, hey, I, I found this new miracle cleanser that can clean any stain." Better than bleach and better than pine saw or branch ba- basics or Dr. Bonner or Mrs. Myers or Oscar Meyer, I don't know, you know, and whatever essential oils that you're into, right? whatever concoctions that you make and swear by. My, my wife loves these, uh, these cloths. They're magic to her, like they're magical cloths that, you know, you can wipe down a kitchen counter after you've cut raw chicken on it and then take it to the beach and use it as a beach towel and you know it's magical you can do anything with these cloths apparently so what is the most powerful cleansing agent on planet earth well the bible tells us it's the blood of christ we are cleansed by his blood 
Have your magic cloths. Use your favorite potions to get out grape and grass stains. But when it comes to the, the cleansing of the stain of sin and our guilt and shame, we are washed, we are cleansed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on then to say how it was necessary. Verse 23. It was necessary then that the copies of the things in heaven, remember he referred to the, to the tabernacle as the earthly sanctuary, and there's a heavenly sanctuary, and the earthly one's symbolic. It represents the heavenly one. And we're told again, it's a copy, it's a shadow. But it was necessary that even the copy would be purified, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's a better sacrifice? Well, for Christ. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but Christ, the idea, has then entered the heaven, heavenly place into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should then offer himself often as the high priest entered the most holy place every year with the blood of another, the idea of not his own blood, but the blood of a sacrifice. Otherwise, he goes on to say, then Christ would have to suffer often, over and over again, since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, again, a lot of this we've covered, and so he's repeating the points that he's made before. Because the Old Testament and the, we'll use his word, the earthly copies required nearly everything to be sanctified and cleansed and dedicated with blood, and without it there was no dedication, there was no forgiveness, so following that biblical pattern and logic, he goes on then to draw a parallel. And conclusion should become is clear then. If the old covenant was brought in this way, the new covenant then, which is not temporary, it needs to be inaugurated with better sacrifices. And that's exactly what Christ's offering was. All of the illustrations he's giving us Christ was better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the Levites. He is a better high priest. And he is a better sacrifice. He's a superior priest who brings us into a superior sanctuary. And he does so with a superior offering. And his offering is himself. He doesn't bring any other offering. And so that last phrase there in verse 26, and he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What's another point that we appreciate that we, makes his sacrifice meaningful? To understand his sacrifice then was substitutionary. Just as the sacrifices that the old system brought were substitutionary. Christ himself was a substitutionary sacrifice for us. See, understand that it wasn't just a symbol of love. 
It wasn't just a gesture of His grace. It wasn't just a metaphor. What we need to wrap our mind and heart and soul around is the fact that it, it has real life meaning. Jesus took your place. All that you and I deserved. Jesus stood in our place of judgment. And it wasn't conceptual. This is personal. It should affect you, impact you personally. Remember in the gospel scenes, Pontius Pilate, and there was this custom that he had to appease the people that he would release one of the prisoners, their choosing. And even though the prisoner was guilty, he would, he'd let them go, this, this kind of act of mercy. What so happened that you remember that he had this hardened criminal, this violent criminal by the name of Barabbas, who was guilty, sentenced to die. And when he had arrested Jesus, he then gave them a choice. I, I can either let Jesus go, who he three times said he's innocent, or I can let Barabbas go. And, and you remember that the people... <laughs> to crucify the Savior and, and let the guilty one go free. That, that wasn't hypothetical. That wasn't theoretical. For Barabbas, it meant his life back. Pilate maybe meant it as a, as a gesture, but it meant something for Barabbas. Gang, it's the same way. It means something for us. We, we are Barabbas, if you will. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Christ who was not sin, who knew no sin, to, to, in a sense, become sin, take our sin. And the penalty of that, and the punishment of that, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. We need to understand his sacrifice was a substitutionary. It should have been you. It should have been me. He goes on in verse 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ then was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. As we come into these last two verses, you've heard the phrase YOLO. I don't know if it translates into Japanese. YORO. I don't know. <laughs> you only live once. And people use that phrase to, you know, as an excuse to do something crazy usually. Or you're on a diet, you're going to eat a big piece of chocolate cake. Ah, YOLO, I'm going to eat it. Now listen, the reality, the Bible tells us it's not YOLO. The reality is that we will live forever. The question needs to be, that needs to be settled is where you will spend forever. Where will you spend eternity? 
Because this is certain. One day, all of us are going to pass from this life into eternal life, and we're going to stand before Jesus. One day, as it's appointed for us, and gang, we will not miss that appointment. We have an appointment with death. We have an appointment when we pass from this life to the next. And again, we're not going to miss it. What we decide on this side of eternity about Jesus Christ and who He is will determine where you spend eternity. The Bible is very clear what God wants. He desires that none should perish, but all would come to repentance, that all would come to a saving knowledge. But in God's grace and love, He doesn't force us. By His Spirit, He draws us. By His Spirit, He'll open your eyes and heart to His truth and His love, His forgiveness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We'll be overwhelmed with how good God is. But then it is to you and to me to receive then, by faith, what God has provided. His sacrifice. And when you and I do, well, the Bible says we will spend eternity with Him. For those who refuse and reject that gift, people will spend eternity apart from Him. And to those who refuse, Jesus' judgment awaits. And we didn't make no mistake, it will be a terrifying moment. It's appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment will come. For those of us who've come to Christ by faith, responding to his invitation, notice the contrast in verse 28. So Christ then was offered once. He bears the sins of many, our many sins of many. And to those then who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Here's a question. Are we eagerly waiting for Him? See, there, there should be a sense in us that we in one way, look forward to. We, we yearn for. The Bible talks about how creation groans. And we see the, the events happening in the world around us and the things that make us angry and upset and disappointed. Those are reminders that this is not our home. I, I framed it this way. Our eternal salvation it should transform the way we see life today. What, what happens in eternity, in our perspective of eternity, should change our perspective of our, well, our earthly perspective. Because we've been completely forgiven. We have the promise of eternal life. And because we have those things, we don't have to fear them when the end comes. We don't have to fear what tomorrow may bring because we are secure in the Lord. It reminds me of this older, uh, I think the family name is the Gaithers. Have you heard of them? 
He writes this song, it's called Because He Lives. And the lyrics go, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And so again, when we see the events around us, it transforms our perspective because we belong to the Lord. And so we can rejoice in those things. We can be secure in those things, knowing our redemption is drawing close. Jesus says, when you see these things happening, know your redemption draws nigh and look up. And and lastly, number five, these verses remind us the meaningfulness of his sacrifice and that his sacrifice was completely sufficient. Completely sufficient. He didn't need to continually offer a sacrifice, and we don't need to continually offer a sacrifice. That was the old system, designed in that as a reminder that we will always be in this perpetuation of sin. It, it, it was a picture of the need then for a Savior to close that, to put away forever. And that's the idea of verse 26. He appeared to put away sin, and the idea is He put it away forever. And again, He says it again, and Christ was offered once, the idea that He didn't need then to be offered again. It only needed one time. Once and only once. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing that we do can add to our salvation. Nothing we bring. Nothing we do. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you and for me was completely... What were the words we used when we were talking about? Effective and efficacious. Did I say it right? Against sin. Again, what the old covenant promised, it could not produce. Every time, every year, any occasion that you and I or someone sinned, they'd have to come back to the priest. The priest himself would sin. He'd have to go back and offer a sacrifice. The cycle never stopped. But Christ came, offered once, to put away to bear, to carry, to absolve the sins of many forever. Yesterday, today, and guess what? My stupidity tomorrow and yours too, Christ has paid for. And what can we do then? Appreciate and adore and worship. Find rest in that. And so that's what we're going to do. A great opportunity for us, the first Sunday of the month, to think soberly about what Christ has done for us, a time that we can come to the table to remember and to celebrate who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and then who we are in the Lord. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to invite the ushers to prepare the
the bread and the cup for us. And in many ways, this too becomes like a, a, a participatory parable that we get to take part in. Something that we get to do to remind us of God's grace, to remind us that we belong to the Lord. Jesus took a very meaningful and significant symbolic meal, and he amplified the meaning. And in fact, you know, in verse 20, we read, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. That very phrase Jesus took, and he amplified that. He would say, and this is my blood of the new covenant that God has brought. And so his blood symbolizes then this new covenant. The bread symbolizes his body that was broken for us and the cup symbolizes that bread uh, excuse me the cup symbolizes his blood that we've been cleansed and forgiven and redeemed and washed and made new all in the merits of Christ and Christ alone Again, it, it reminds us that sin is serious that Jesus took our place that we have eternity secured and, and that fact should then help us to have a proper perspective of what's happening in the life around us today. And nothing else is needed. Christ's sacrifice was completely sufficient. And so what is left for us? Well, to come in adoration, appreciation, and worship, and love. Let's do that. Father, we once again humble our hearts before you, thanking you for what Christ has done. Search our hearts, Lord. May we have just a sweet, intimate time with you right now. Reveal, speak, comfort. Lord, even rebuke and correct us, please. May we be overwhelmed, afresh and anew, by your amazing grace, your unending love, everything that Jesus did for us, and that we would be called yours, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we worship you now, in Christ's name, amen.